For KOSU News, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and ACLU Oklahoma Executive Director Ryan Kiesel. Governor Stitt signs bills to give him more power over five agencies. The governor now has power to hire and fire the leaders of the Departments of Transportation, Corrections, Mental Health, as well as the Oklahoma Health Care Authority and Office of Juvenile Affairs. The boards and commissions of the five agencies are getting reconstituted under the new legislation. Neva, again, we're talking about legislation which flew through the legislature and were quickly signed by the governor. Absolutely, and this is something that the governor wanted, as we've talked about, uh, something that the legislative leaders came together, hammered out their, their differences, came to a deal. And as uh, Speaker McCall said during the signing ceremony, that the pace was uh, nothing short of miraculous, uh, the term he used. And, and you're right, Michael. I mean, this is something that was on a fast track, something the governor wanted. And I think when you look at it, it came down in both chambers on party line votes. Uh, it was a it was clearly a Republican initiative. I think it does speak to the governor's uh, negotiating skills and his ability to really forge a consensus among his uh, his strong majority in both the House and the Senate and move these things forward quickly. So it does reconstitute the uh, the boards, which happens, I think, effective today. So we're going to see some sweeping changes very quickly, and I think it moves right in, in, in line with what uh, the governor has talked about from day one when he took office. Right. I think you break it down into a couple of different, you can break it down into politics and policy. The politics here are just incredible. You know, what we're really seeing is a governor who has seized the power of the executive, who's made himself a force to be reckoned with in that in that building, which is, again, uh, not something that we've seen for the last eight years at least, uh, a governor that has been this engaged in the legislative process. And these bills, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, guys, but I, I think that these are the the first bills that have hit his desk that have an emergency clause, so they go into effect. So even though these, right. even these, those, even these, uh, even though these are not the first bills that he has signed, these are the first laws under the state administration that will become law that are law right now. And so, you know, I think that that's that's a big a uh, big thing to consider there, and a big hallmark for his administration. The the politics of this, we're already beginning to see you know, some of the, the members of the board, some of the, the agency heads uh, you know, beginning to play this new political game of trying to ingratiate themselves to the governor and saying, you know, we welcome this. We look forward to because they're reapplying for their jobs today. I mean, that's every, you know, when you look at those uh, those five uh, agency directors, they're going to the governor's office and they're saying, rehire me. Um, and so that's we're starting to see some of the politics of that in the media play out. You know, there have been some comments, and uh, I do think that the consolidation of the power in the executive could be problematic here. Um, but we've seen some comments recently from people that have been on these boards in the past that say that you know, governors, if they've wanted to, if they've wanted to exercise the power, they've had this power all along. And so it's just really a recalibrating of, of where that power is going to be directed. And, 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 you know, I think it's interesting, too, when we talk about uh, these changes, they really come behind uh, in 2012 when the voters decided uh, and went to the polls and said that, they, that we needed to change how business was done at the Department of Human Services. Mm-hmm. DHS, I mean, the uh, uh, after all of the scandals, basically what happened was exactly what is happening with these agencies, uh, the ability for the governor to, to hire the executive director and for uh, uh, kind of reconstituting the way they operate at DHS. And then last year, I mean, the legislature didn't wait for uh, action to be taken when we had the total 
scandal and debacle at the health department where they took the initiative to have these same measures put in place. So I think what we're seeing is is the landscape changing in state government where there's going to be much more accountability and much more transparency with these changes that have come about. And certainly more issues if uh, something goes wrong that it goes up to the governor when it comes up for re-election. Yeah, the, the, the buck stops with him. I, I think that it'll be interesting to see if there is more transparency, if there is more accountability. One of the one of the things that when we look at this is, you know, maybe by empowering these boards more, we'd have more accountability and transparency, not by, because essentially they, they're, uh, they're advisory at this point. I mean, they, their ability to hire and fire is gone. They, they serve at will. Uh, they can't be removed. Uh, uh, they, they can be removed even if they don't have cost to remove them. So if they disagree with the governor, if they disagree with the mission of the administration or maybe even the legislature at some point, given the provisions in these bills, they could be gone. So those could be political, not policy I, I don't decisions. See, I don't see that, that, that that's as big an issue because I think what you have with these boards and commissions, even the way they were before these changes coming into play, uh, you had folks that were lay people coming, serving on, on boards and commissions basically having to take uh, in large measure what the what the paid executive director the 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 head folks and in these agencies were telling them and so they basically were in most cases just affirming what was already going on in these agencies you didn't find much antagonism or much uh, uh, consternation in these boards me- board meetings where people were raising issues those issues may have been raised privately or you know one on one but i think we'll have actually a much uh, a much more vibrant process where uh, we'll see uh, probably a more exchange of ideas in in this context than we have ever before. And that, that's where I'm saying I think that you know we could have we could have gone down a different path where instead of consolidating power in the, the governor's office here, we could have uh, given these uh, boards and commissions even more power so that they were less advisory, so that they were less you know volunteer based, but that we had fully staffed, fully employed boards that were operating as a real check uh, on these agency directors. But of course, that's not the path we've gone, and we'll see what happens. A measure known as the Unity Bill is heading to the governor's desk for his signature after passing the state House and Senate. The measure adds regulation on the medical marijuana state question passed by voters last year. Ryan, House Bill 2612 appears to have approval from most medical marijuana supporters. Yeah, I think that, you know, this puts the medical cannabis program in the state of Oklahoma on a path toward success. I mean, if we've seen huge numbers in patient applications. Uh, we've seen huge numbers in processors, dispensaries, manufacturers, growers, you know, people that are involved. This has become a much bigger industry than I think even the people within the industry expected. And it's happened very fast. Um, I think by and large, most of the folks out there are um, above the board operators doing the best that they can, but this gives some people some framework. Um, you know, these laws don't go into effect until 90 days after the adjournment of the legislative session. So Everybody's going to have some time to get up to speed with with the new uh, regulations and requirements. But it's going to, at the end of the day, I think, uh, despite or despite some uh, some small problems with the bill, um, I think at the end of the day, what we're going to see is a an industry that's safer for consumers and patients, so that they've got they've got access, they have a, a better idea of what it is that they're getting. They can know that it's being tested, that it's uh, that it, it meets the requirements of the states around us and that it's not just, you know, the total wild west and medical cannabis in Oklahoma. And Neva. Well, I think I think the bill was very comprehensive. It it dealt with so many issues that frankly, uh, the the public doesn't really even consider are part of part of what had to be hammered out. I mean, what are safety sensitive jobs? How mm-hmm. you know, how is the lab testing going to be done to make sure that we have a, a product out there that is not uh, not going to uh, um, uh, 
adversely affect uh, you know the folks that are that are folks that are buying it uh, the licensing procedure the packaging packaging procedure all of these things and now we're seeing uh, probably a dozen or more trailer bills you know out there still working through the process that are still dealing with some additional things i mean the the uh, uh, the disposal uh, uh, issue i mean all of mm-hmm. all of these things that i think not only will we see move through the legislative process this year but i think they'll come back in years you know in years to come and have additional issues that will come up just like we've seen with tobacco and other you know other issues uh, that they will have to continue to deal with legislatively i think you republican senator greg mccourtney has uh, several like dozen about mm-hmm. a dozen bills uh, still that just the unity bill didn't tackle but again none of those seem to be having any problems they're pretty bi- bipartisan as well well and i think that you know neva pointed out the safety sensitive jobs you know those are those are people that aren't precluded from getting a patient license, but it do, they don't have the same kind of employment protections because of their safety-sensitive jobs. I think that that section of the bill is probably uh, overbroad. I think that it captures too many individuals. And it's it's important to remember here that this is, <clears throat> at this point in Oklahoma, we're talking about medical cannabis, medical marijuana. These are patients. <clears throat> they're using this as medicine. And um, to, to have huge sections of, of industries that are precluded uh, from having any sort of employment protection to have access to a medicine that's recommended to them by a physician, I think you know, that part is probably going to get retooled at some point as we get a better sense of what this looks like. And I think as, as stigma breaks down, right? I mean, six months ago, uh, I think more and more Oklahomans would have had a harder time saying knowing somebody that regularly used marijuana products. And now we're at a point where you know, it's you're hard pressed to find somebody that doesn't have a patient. I've got a patient license, and uh, I think that as that stigma breaks down, and more and more people know somebody who uses uh, marijuana as a medicine, or or use uses marijuana as medicine themselves, well, uh, legislators will get more educated about that. I'd like, I'd be interested to know if there are any legislators that have patient cards. Yeah, I was outside my my, shop, my gaming shop, and the, the guy was vaping in marijuana, medical marijuana. I'm like, oh, you didn't think? I was like, okay, only in Oklahoma now, apparently. So did he have a? Can, did he have his? What well, did he? Have, did he? Did he have his open carry with him? Yeah, was that the? Well, that hasn't know. gone into effect yet. <laughs> but, had, actually, but, had, but, had, but clearly, there had to be there had to be areas where there were concerns. Right. Uh, I mm-hmm. mean, if you have someone handling hazardous or combustible materials, if you have uh, uh, police and firefighters, if you have uh, folks that are operating. Uh, uh, you know, heavy machinery. I mean, any number of things that that are specifically outlined as the jobs in in this in this bill. Uh, clearly, there were many more that probably were on the table that didn't make it. But uh, I think it was a give and take, and I think what they came up with, uh, even in in terms of people that are involved in patient care or in child care. I mean, you're right. It's a lo- It's a it's a long list when you really read through it. But these are these are places where I think the public would generally. Uh, <coughs> be in agreement that uh, that it would warrant this kind of uh, this kind of uh, action and there are reasonable restrictions that exist on you know, opioid use I mean if you're if you're on pain heavy pain medication you shouldn't be operating heavy machinery or driving mm-hmm. um, that could preclude you from certain occupations there and so I mean I think that your know, reasonable uh, reasonable limitations there I think that those carve outs need to be narrower and I think that they really need to uh, to the extent possible be focused on the use of medical cannabis while you're performing that function. And mm-hmm. so if if you use medical cannabis the night before to help yourself go to sleep, uh, get, get a better night's sleep, or to deal with you know, some sort of anxiety issue that keeps you from sleeping, 
and then you wake up the next morning, you're not still you're not still under the influence of medical cannabis. You should be able to go do your job. It should be incumbent upon the employer then to say this person is uh, under the influence of work. Do you think that this might actually because when it talks about narrowing the law, that usually goes in the court system. Do you think some of these might actually end up going to court? I think it'd be difficult to win a court case um, uh, here. I don't think it's impossible, but I think it would be difficult to go to court and and get a uh, get a court to overturn these narrow limits. Um, and, and again, as, as much as I think that that's something that's going to be re- revisited, this is certainly, uh, 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 you know, just light years away from where we were with the health department's initial, uh, rule promulgation after 788. And so lawmakers learned a lesson there. They, they saw the political backlash that happened after the health department, you know, promulgated those rules that were very heavy handed, very restrictive and would have destroyed the industry and, and patient access. Um, and so <clears throat> this unity bill is really a bipartisan response to that political outcry that happened after this, not only after 788 passed, but after the health department's rules. And I think these lawmakers have been wise to look at states like Colorado, California, right. Oregon. I mean, places that have already gone down this road and not make the same mistakes that, that they did. So I think they've been very prudent. And, and uh, some of these folks that have really spent months now uh, really getting into the weeds of trying to uh, understand understand what's going on and try to make the best decisions possible in Oklahoma, I think is what got it to the place where now it's on the governor's desk uh, waiting to be signed. Yeah. Governor Stitt wants the state auditor to investigate the Oklahoma Health Care Authority to determine whether the agency is meeting the needs of the state's Medicaid beneficiaries. Stitt also wants to determine if those enrolled meet state and federal eligibility requirements. Neva, why is this necessary? Well, to me, this is just uh, putting teeth and and an executive order behind something that uh, was passed last year by the legislature. Uh, Representative Terry O'Donnell, uh, his bill basically asked or called for the uh, health care authority to uh, to have this audit, and I, it would appear, at least from the outside, that this was bureaucracy somewhat stonewalling the legislature because nothing had happened. And so I think what the governor is saying is, look, we need this information. I mean, this is a this is a billion-dollar operation. I mean, with a change in, at the helm uh, in the offing, and I think that it's important to figure out exactly uh, the eligibility, the re-eligibility. These, this information is critical to be able to move forward and make the decisions necessary to do whatever whatever they choose in restructuring or or uh, changing direction in the agency it certainly has an impact down the road and I think uh, as we've talked about the Medicaid discussion may may well have not gone away it may be part of this uh, uh, process as we get into the uh, the real throes of negotiating on the budget that we may see some give and take the governor's not uh, firmly uh, set down his uh, position you know concretely on on this matter and I think this is just another piece in the equation to see where it goes. Ryan. I mean, I, I think that this could be the pretext for a couple of different things. And he talked about, <clears throat> Governor Stid talked about this during his campaign. This is a campaign promise of his. He's making good on uh, with, with the call for the audit. The, the health care authority, they're saying that they welcome the audit, which, of course, they said that they welcome the audit. What else are you going to say? We don't, we don't know about this, guys. Uh, they didn't welcome we, it when the legislature <laughs> Look over here. Judges. Shiny object. Shiny object. No, I, I think that, you know, of course, you know, the poli- they, they have to welcome it. Um, if it's the like I said, it could be the pretext for a couple of different things. One of them would be really concerning, and that is looking at the roles of folks on Medicaid and in, in, in an effort to purge them 
to you know to try to save some money on the backs of the most vulnerable populations in the state of Oklahoma by by kicking them off Medicaid. Um, or you know, but the other thing, the other pretext, and this is one where I'm a little bit more hopeful, is that this gives the governor a baseline. This gives the governor some information about Medicaid, the healthcare authority, you know where they actually stand, what the numbers look like, and that could be the the basis for a real. A meaningful talk uh, within the governor's office about expanding Medicaid. And so if we're going to have Medicaid expansion in the state of Oklahoma, I think for this governor to be satisfied and walk into that uh, conversation with good faith, he's got to have this information. And so hopefully after this is done, uh, that will lead the that'll pave the way for a real conversation about Medicaid expansion in Oklahoma. And hopefully, I mean, the state auditor, uh, Cindy Bird, I mean, certainly her office uh, is uh, tasked with this responsibility to get the audit done. And hopefully it can be done fairly quickly because I think this information is really something that is needed to uh, kind of move forward with what needs to happen at the health care authority this session and this year. I mean, the Tulsa World reported in their story about this, uh, they reported a comment that Governor Stitt made on the campaign trail. He said the problem with expanding Medicaid is that it puts more people on our systems. Well, of course it does. That's exactly we're trying to cover more people with health care. So I don't see that as a problem. And I don't and I don't know that he necessarily sees it as a problem. I think what they want to see is uh, that the enrollment uh, is meeting the state and federal eligibility requirements. And I think once that's determined, I mean, those numbers are what will everyone will move forward and work with. But at this point, uh, no one has good numbers. And that's what and that's what is uh, that's what's missing. Yeah, I'm, I'm choosing to be hopeful about this. <laughs> More than 150 former and current employees of the State Department of Health are suing the agency. The petition alleges they were fired, forced to resign, or forced to retire in 2017 and 2018 after the department claimed the termination of about 200 employees was necessary due to a $30 million deficiency. It was later discovered the department wasn't ever, in fact, insolvent. Ryan, do we have a case here? I think it's a really tough case to make. Uh, you know, Oklahoma is an at-will state. Um, you, know, I, you know, I read through the petition this morning to, to get a better sense of the claims that are being made. I think that the, the politics of it, you know, every, I think, you know, nine out of 10 Oklahomans would tell you that these employees were wronged and that, that they got the raw deal here, that they were, um, they were the, uh, the victims of, of, uh, malfeasance of negligence, but whether or not that rises to the level of civil liability on behalf of the state of Oklahoma and the, the health uh, department, I think that that's going to be a really difficult case to make. Um, you know, the, the idea that you have a, a legal right to work for an employer that, uh, you know, manages their finances uh, appropriately. You know, there are a lot of people out there that work for companies that, you know, nosedive into the ground because of, of poor management and your ability to go sue the management because you you lost your job. Because, you know, I think that that's kind of the case here. The difference is that this is a state employee or a state employer. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, there there could be some some statutory rights there. There's also the question of this being a political question. I mean, the the way that those nine out of 10 people that are upset about these employees losing their jobs, I'm upset about them losing their jobs. But the way that we deal with that is through political accountability. And you hold the people responsible that make those political decisions that led to this mismanagement in the first place. Neva. Well, I mean, uh, the legal 
aspect aside, I mean, when you think back to the multi-county grand jury report last May, I mean, it basically said two things, that A, the agency was never insolvent, and B, that the elimination of the jobs was unnecessary. So, I mean, you have you have a situation where, uh, I mean, it, 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 do they go down the road of basically saying someone should get their job back with back pay, or do they get a wrongful termination, you know, with a settlement? I mean, I think you're right. I think it's a, it's a, it will be an interesting court uh, uh, court uh, case to uh, watch unfold. But you're right. I mean, the public perception on this, the fact that uh, that it doesn't it, it doesn't pass any test. I mean, and as people remember, this was done right before our Christmas holiday season. I mean, the, just the the impact on you know the state and the black eye that uh, that we all incurred having to watch this uh, uh, was just uh, it was scandalous. I mean, to see an agency that out of control and run amok and then to have these consequences um you know there's not an easy way to write the the total situation but it's certainly something we need to remember and not and hopefully not see happen again and and if the courts come back and say that just because the firings were unnecessary that doesn't necessarily violate oklahoma's at will correct i mean so that could happen that's right but the legislature could fix that so i mean if if we really if we get to that point where this case is dismissed or ultimately uh you know for whatever reason you know jury finds against the uh, the state employees here, the former state employees here, whatever that looks like, the legislature could come in and they could give state employees greater rights uh, and greater employment protections so that whenever this does happen in the future, there isn't any guesswork as to whether or not, you know, is there a case here or not that, you know, they could they could uh, codify some due process requirements, some notice requirements, some opportunity to, to be rehired. I mean, there, there, are some legis- there are some legal uh, hurdles that stood in the way of people being rehired to their old jobs. You know, so you had somebody that was fired. You had a vacant position that needed to be filled oftentimes in rural areas where you had services that were gone. And because of a law that said this person can't be rehired for a job that they were terminated from, you took the most qualified applicant and you disqualified them. Uh, so those are things that, you know, regardless of this litigation, this is something that the legislature could pick up. A report in the Tulsa World shows a teacher pay raise in Texas might be good news for Oklahoma educators. Texas is considering a $5,000 raise, while Oklahoma is just considering $1,200. Governor Stitt's office says it's monitoring the Texas legislature and still wants Oklahoma to be number one in this endeavor. Neva, how do you interpret this? Well, I think I'm not sure how to fully interpret it, but in looking at it and trying to read a little bit more about uh, what's going on down there, it may, in in the minds of some, even in the uh, uh, even in the Texas Teachers Association, they see this as a pay raid, not a pay raise. I mean, that's being talked about because it's it's kind of the bait and switch. I mean, yes, they're talking about giving them a raise, but they're talking about reducing their benefits, or or, or the cost would be greatly increased for their you know for their benefits. So, and it doesn't uh, what appears to be you know one number that looks really good when you start looking at the real effect of it. It may be something totally different. And you know, I'm I'm always a little suspect when we look at these things i mean oklahoma uh when you when you look at the uh, uh even the teachers with their uh their benefit package it's considered a very generous uh, ac- uh, across the board i mean in in the uh, uh, state uh, employee situation in the teacher uh in the teacher situation uh they have very generous uh, benefit packages in comparison to other states even though the salaries uh, you know don't necessarily square up so i think i think a lot of times we're talking apples and oranges i mean the governor 
yes, he wants to be number one uh, uh, in the region. But getting there, uh, we have to make sure that we're that we're looking at apples and apples. And when you have Texas with a uh, talking about spending six billion dollars in education, that's our entire state budget in Oklahoma. I mean, it, it people have to really kind of step back and keep this in some perspective. And I think that uh, I think that we'll see kind of how this plays out. But it sounds like more. A big headline that it does some real uh, some real interesting facts. Right, and Neva, I may be wrong. I, I thought the six billion figure was just the amount <laughs> an increase uh, in, in, in I think you may be here. right. So, I think you may be so right. So it wasn't that's even right. their education right. budget; it was the amount an increase here. We also have like yes. four or five that's times right. more that's teachers. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah they're, they're right. a small country down there. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and you know, if we don't it's hard pick, to keep up with if, the Joneses. If, <laughs> if, if, I know. I, I was I'm thinking Lukenbach, Texas, uh, the the entire time here. You know, I I think you know if we don't fix real ID, we may have a problem getting into. Texas at some point. Um, I, I think that uh, there, there are a lot of moving parts here. I think that it's, it's difficult to base your entire uh, success in education funding on a one-to-one comparison from one state to the next. I think right, right now, uh, Oklahoma would be better off looking at itself and maybe where we were 10 years ago, because even though we've seen some real increases in revenue and appropriations for education, we're going to see that again this year uh, as a result of revenue packages that were passed last year. Um, still, we're well below where we were 10 years ago if we adjust for inflation. Uh, we still have a lot of uh, um, alternative uh, certification teachers in the classroom. We're having a hard time recruiting uh, teachers. We're, you know, we haven't even really had a real conversation about support staff, cafeteria workers, janitorial staff. We haven't had a real conversation, or we're beginning to have a conversation at least around school counselors and how important that is to get those plugged in and so that we don't have just one, one counselor that's rotating among several different schools, but we have counselors that are in those classrooms or in those uh, schools that, are, that know those students, that are helping them uh, with their professional and their emotional development in, in those schools. You know, those are, those are all real conversations. And frankly, as, as much as uh, we're grateful for what's happened with the, the revenue increases uh, and the appropriations, we're well behind. And so Oklahoma teachers, um, you know, we, we hear talk about pay raise this year, but really what we're talking about is classroom funding and, and increasing uh, the amount of money that's going into the formula so that the wraparound services that teachers depend on and, and support staff depend on to provide services to students, that those are funded as well. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the ACLU, KOSU, its staff, or management.